we return again to the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the unveiling that the Lord has given us with respect to the things that will happen before he returns. It's been a few years since we've been in this text, but we will return to it tonight. And I want to look at the first ten verses of chapter 13. Why don't I read this to you and then we'll wade through it here for a few minutes this evening. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and the he is referring to Satan. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority Over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Given the turmoil in our nation right now, I thought I would speak to the issue of the things that will happen before the Lord returns. Obviously, we don't know when that will be. But as we look at Bible prophecy and we compare that to the things that we see in our world, we realize that the time could be very, very soon. Our nation is in turmoil. We see the leadership of our nation in absolute chaos. As you know, economically, for the first time in the history of the United States, our country is experiencing a downgrade from Standard & Poor's from a AAA rating to a, what is it, a AA plus. Interest rates will inevitably rise because of this. We're all going to feel this over time. 
as we look at things like Obamacare, and it's interesting, I got a phone call the other day from the government saying we would like to have you consider Obamacare and, and we'd like to give you the options. And they knew exactly what my insurance was and so forth, and we, we were stunned. I don't know, have any of you received that call yet? I guess you probably will. But as we look at that, we know that our country simply cannot afford this. We are hopelessly in debt. And yet insurance rates are already continuing to rise and on and on it goes. One expert that I read on communism said this, quote, social changes in the past 50 years have followed a communist checklist for encouraging moral rot and undermining free enterprise in the West. Things like homosexual rights, extremist environmentalism, government growth, promotion of obscenity and immorality, the increase in availability of abortion, feminism, and the Marxist domination of our public school system, end quote, and he goes on from there. As we look even at our country, not to mention around the world, we see an increased hatred of Israel, where God's beloved enemy, his chosen people, Israel, currently reside. We've seen this even in the way our president has treated Prime Minister Netanyahu when he has come. The sensitivity towards Islam continues to grow and the hatred towards Israel, as well as Christianity, continues to grow. I read recently that Guantanamo's Muslim detainees have convinced the United States prison there not to fly the American flag where they can see it because it offends their sensibilities, the sensibilities of Islamic jihadists that are in U.S. custody. The United States has agreed not to offend them, so they've moved the flag. It's absurd. United Nations Security Council is now agreeing with the Arab leagues of nations to grant UN membership to the Palestinian state in the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and Israel and to consider East Jerusalem as its capital. They're seeking to force Israel to give up half of its land. If you know anything about the land, you know that if they give up any portion of this land, Israel is completely indefensible. And of course, that's ultimately what they want. You have the Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran, all determined to destroy the Jewish state and disperse its people. And frankly, as we look at all of this and we compare this, for example, to um, the prophetic literature in, in um, Ezekiel 38 and 39, you very quickly see that the stage is set. The invasion of Gog and Magog, which, as we look at it, are clearly Islamic countries that God will bring down upon Israel and destroy them on the mountains of Israel. We're not, we're not sure prophetically when this will happen. I tend to believe, and if you've heard me teach on this, I agree with others that tend to believe that this could happen uh, actually before the rapture of the church, but we don't know for sure. But again, we see the stage is set for all of this. 
And sadly, beyond all of this, we see an increased hatred, even in evangelical circles, for a premillennial position, for people who, as we would do, interpret the Scriptures with their normal meaning, the normal understanding of Scripture, and therefore maintain a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic all throughout Scripture, which leads you to a premillennial understanding of prophecy, which leads you to the conclusion that what God has promised Israel, he is going to fulfill with Israel, that there is a huge distinction between Israel and the church. That Israel is not the church. And there is an increased hatred towards people like that, people like us. Many times we're called Christian Zionists. We believe that God's promises are true to his people, that there will be a literal Jerusalem as the Jewish capital of a future millennial kingdom. That there will be a future temple, as Ezekiel 40 through 48 tells us, and on and on. Elwood McQuaid with Friends of Israel, if you get the little magazine, Israel, My Glory, which I hope you do. It's a great magazine. He says this, quote, Christian Zionists are accused of blasphemy in fa- by some. In fact, the accusers are so hostile to Israel, they question the very idea of, re- of revering Jerusalem as the holy city and claim that Christian Zionists endorse the, quote, ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. Of course, that's not even remotely true. Of course, we don't endorse that. He went on to say, today there is a deep-seated theological hostility toward dispensational teaching, and it reflects an obsessive prejudice against Israel and denies Jewish people their rightful place in God's program. As one non-dispensationalist put it, quote, the church is Israel in a newly reformed and expanded phase of existence. The church is really the continuation of Israel, end quote. I won't get into that, but certainly I've, I've argued, and you can hear this in expositions that I've done, that there, there is no indication that that is true in Scripture. Well, the point with all of this is to say the world is a mess, and I believe that the prophetic stage is set for the final events, that the world is indeed being prepared for the Antichrist. There is an old adage that says nature abhors a vacuum. And indeed, whenever a vacuum is, is created in physics, it is immediately filled with something, whether it be water or air or some other form of matter. Because of sin, we know that mankind is at enmity with God. He's separated from his life and he's languishing under the the divine curse that God has placed on creation. And our world today is experiencing a vacuum of righteous leadership that is essential for our survival. Satan, we know, biblically, is the temporary God of this world. And his diabolical rule, his diabolical kingdom, is a stark contrast to the kingdom of light, that will one day blaze forth in the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
without getting into great detail, I believe that the timeline biblically is the next thing that will happen on the prophetic timetable is the Lord will come and snatch away his bride in what is called the rapture. At that point, he will begin Daniel's 70th week of judgment upon his covenant people Israel. He will pour out upon the earth seven years of tribulation like the world has never known. At the end of that seven years of tribulation, that time of judgment upon the nations as well as upon his covenant people, at the end of that time, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth. He will return in power and in great glory. And the saints, we his saints, will return with him. And at that point, he will renovate this earth. He will return it back to Edenic splendor. And he will rule from a literal throne in a literal Jerusalem for a thousand years. And we will reign with him. And all of the covenant promises that he gave to Israel will be fulfilled. And at the end of that thousand year reign, of which Satan will have been bound, he will release Satan for a short period of time, and there will be one final battle of wickedness. And at the end of that, God will recreate the heavens and the earth. And that millennial kingdom then will be the end of human history. And then that will bridge into the eternal state. So these are the things that Scripture speaks of if you interpret it literally as I would do based on the normal understanding of language rather than spiritualizing all of it and making it into, frankly, anything you want it to be. But only a fool would claim that our world is getting better. As we look at it, the metastasizing corruption of sin continues to, to destroy the final organs of our world system. And the world has a leadership vacuum that, are many, that many are trying to fill. The steady deterioration of societies is certainly a dilemma to the liberal elite who remain committed to classic Darwinianism, that evolutionary vision that would say that ultimately man is progressing and trending upward. I don't see that. And since this is not happening, they come in with their social engineering to try to make it happen, requiring, of course, the superior wisdom of the liberal elite to somehow control the populace whom they consider to be ignorant rabble. And frankly, this is what gave rise to the president that we currently have, the administration that we have. Man is desperate for a leader. Somebody who will give them the answers. And therefore, they are predisposed to worshiping anyone that offers them, quote, change they can believe in. Where have you heard that before? As we continue to watch the economic freefall in our country, we see that even the most optimistic economists say, that we are in serious danger of falling into a depression, that things could get much worse. And dear friends, if America is brought to her knees economically, we will at that point gladly obey anybody that will help us feed our families. And we will become serfs of the elite 
the ones that I believe Satan will put over us. Now imagine how much worse the world will be once the true church is translated into heaven. Imagine what it'll be like when we are snatched away. Can you imagine a world with no more Christians? No more salt, no more light. No more salt that would slow down the decomposition. No more light to expose error. David Larson, the great theologian that was once in this pulpit a number of years ago, said this, quote, Problems on earth seem insurmountable. No human leadership seems competent to address the complexity of the issues. A demographic explosion with moral, social, economic, ecological, and political ramifications baffles the think tanks of the world. Humankind's vaunted self-sufficiency evaporates in the face of insoluble questions. The church, notwithstanding her frequent impotence and perennial failure, is now gone, and the salt and light she was afforded are missing. Homo sapiens are adrift, rudderless, end quote. That's what it'll be like when the church is gone. The world needs a leader. It needs a political hero. One prominent Belgian diplomat who is also an astute um, European strategist named Paul Enrique Spock put it this way, quote, we do not want another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all the people and to lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, be he God or devil, we will receive him. End quote. Paul Mazur, a prominent European economist, banker, commented on this leadership vacuum. He made this prediction, quote, The large number of government bureaus that will have their orbits in the atmosphere of our planet cannot be allowed the freedom to compete and collide with one another. So in order to control the diverse bureaucracies required, a Politburo will develop. And over this group organization, there is likely to arise the final and single arbiter, the master of the order, the total dictator, end quote. We also see the constant turmoil that's caused by the collision of world religions. And, of course, the cultural elite has the answer for that as well. Let's just form one religion. And we know that not only will there one day be a one-world government, there will be a one-world religion that's finally put a stop to all these warring, warring factions. Let's just put them all together. And we see the acceleration, therefore, of what is called pluralism. This is the agenda, for example, of the Tony Blair Faith Foundation. Blair states this, quote, God's spirit moves through us in the world at a pace that can never be constricted by any one religious paradigm. Be very wary of people who think theirs is the only way, end quote. Members of his, of his board include a Zen Buddhist, a Hindu from Minnesota, an Anglican, a rabbi, and, of course, Rick Warren with the Purpose Driven Life. Blair was one of the featured speakers at the 2009 Leadership Summit hosted by Bill Hybels at the Willow Creek Church. 
That's the church that really gave birth to the whole seeker-sensitive movement about 30 years ago. And they hosted the rock star Bono, I think that's how you pronounce it, who created the coexist sign. Have you ever seen that on bumper stickers? Coexist. It was first displayed in his 2005 Vertigo, Vertigo tour on a massive big screen. The, the C had the Islamic crescent for coexist. You have the C, well, as you're looking at the C, it had the Islamic crescent. The O has the broken inverted cross or the peace sign. The E stood for male and female. The X had the Jewish star of David. And the I had the Wicca pagan Baha'i symbol, became the Wicca pagan Baha'i symbol. The S is turned into the Taoism and Confucianism symbol, and the T was the Christian cross. And also displayed is the favorite mantra of the emergent church, the New Age church. The big sign that says, quote, everything you know is wrong. Then Bono led the audience in a chant, quote, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, all true. Can you imagine chanting that? And these men are asked to speak at a, quote, Christian leadership conference. You see, friends, all discernment is gone. Chaos reigns supreme today. Satan is preparing the world for the Antichrist. He is going to fill that leadership vacuum. As we study scripture, we see that Satan will send his son, the Antichrist, to fill the void. The second member of the unholy trinity, which consists of the dragon, which is Satan, the beast of the sea, which is the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, which is the false prophet, the religious leader. The Antichrist will be a satanically possessed man that will deceive the world. Now, to give you an overview, and we are going to get to the text here in a moment. During the first half of the tribulation, through the help of the false prophet and myriads of demons, the Antichrist will establish a one world religion where indeed they will all coexist. The Lord calls it in Revelation 17, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This will be the church that will become drunk with the blood of the saints, according to the text. And midway through the tribulation, he will turn against the system and demand that the world worship him. In the prophetic drama of the apocalypse, we find consistently the beast being pitted against the lamb, the Lord Jesus. A self-deified politician who will be the seed of the serpent will then be given power to rule over a ten-nation confederacy, which is ultimately the world, all in an effort to eradicate the seed of the woman, which is Israel, and thereby thwart the purposes of God with respect to his covenant promises to establish his kingdom, his messianic kingdom. And so as Judas betrayed Christ, the Antichrist will betray Israel. It's tragic to see how we see this betrayal happening even now in our own country, the betrayal against Israel. In fact, our president has a 4% approval rating in Israel today. A lot of people have asked me, do you think Obama is the Antichrist? 
I have no idea, but I will say this. I would seriously doubt it because even Obama has very low approval ratings in the Arab world. It's about 20% right now. He's the laughing stock of Europe. He's the laughing stock of Russia, the laughing stock of China. And even in the United States, not to mention around the world, his negative ratings are very, very high. The only ones that really approve him here are the liberal elite and those who are worried that they won't get their next handout and so forth. So, having said all of that, giving you a bit of background here, let me give you a better understanding, hopefully, of what the Lord has to say with respect to the end of the age. By way of of context here in chronology, the sounding of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 really sets into motion the final judgments that God will pour out upon the world just before his return. And the actual details of of the bowl judgments are described in chapters 15 and 18. You have the sealed trumpet, uh, the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then finally the bowl judgments. And in chapters 15 through 18, you have uh, the chronological narrative, if you will, of the tribulation um, that will, it, it really resumes then in chapter 15 through 18. So chapters 12 through 14, and of course we're in 13 here, are really parenthetical here. This is a section that chronicles Satan's career and actually recapitulates, uh, recapitulates the um, the events of Revelation 6 through 11. That might be a bit confusing, but that's what's going on here. There's a bit of a parenthesis, and we're in the middle of it. And as we come to these first ten verses in chapter 13, we examine six themes that emerge from the text that help us understand the Antichrist, who he's going to be, what, what he's going to do. Let me try to move through this. We don't have a lot of time, but I, I want to cover this as best I can, and it'll be on the, on the tape for you to listen to. First of all, it speaks of his demonic origin in verse 1. It says, and he, that is the dragon, stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, this is symbolic of the nations of the world over which he stands as the self-appointed ruler. And John says, and I saw a beast, in the Greek, a therion, which speaks of a, a ferocious, violent creature, and he's coming up out of the sea. And the metaphor of the sea biblically always speaks in the, in the Old Testament of the realm of the wicked, a realm of wickedness, the sphere of Satan, the source of satanic sea monsters. In fact, the ancients considered the sea to be a symbol for, quote, the reservoir of evil, end quote. And it was likened to the biblical abyss. And in Revelation 11:7, as well as 17:8, the beast is seen coming up out of the abyss, that prison that currently incarcerates the most vile demons and where Satan will one day be incarcerated during the final days of the millennial kingdom. So John sees this man arising from this wretched penitentiary, if you will. And the diabolical and desecrating um, nature of this demon-possessed man can be seen in the epithets 
used to describe him in Scripture. For example, in Daniel, he is called the little horn, the insolent king, the the prince who is to come, the one who makes desolate, the despicable person, the strong-willed king. And the prophet Zechariah describes him as the worthless shepherd. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, he's described as the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction. And in verse 8, he's described as the lawless one. And here in Revelation, he's described as the beast. So this man will be a, a charismatic demagogue, brilliant, persuasive, yet deceptive and deadly. Now, there's much debate about whether or not this, the Antichrist will be a Jew or a Gentile. There's various arguments that he will be a Jew. Um, because of the length of time, I'm not going to go through all of those. I've done those before, but I don't believe that any of those are compelling. Uh, I am convinced that ultimately he will be a Gentile. Because Jesus refers to this as the times of the Gentiles, this last day period, Luke 21, 24, indicating that a Gentile will be in the position of ruling. And frankly, it's incongruent to have Satan empowering a Jew to be the final ruler of the times of the Gentiles. That just doesn't make sense to me when, when it will be the Gentiles that are trampling down the Jews. As we look at Scripture, I believe that the Antichrist will lead a European alliance, um, a revived Roman Empire of Gentile nations, and all uh, the rulers and nations are described in Daniel 2 as well as uh, Daniel 7, and they're all Gentile. And again, it would make no sense to assume that the Antichrist, whose kingdom bears the identity of the Roman Empire, would be anything other than a Gentile. The description in Daniel 11 parallels the character of the of the arch enemies of of Israel down through the years. And all of them have been Gentiles. You've got Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, Titus, Hadrian and many other Roman as well as Muslim and, and European leaders, not to mention Hitler and Stalin. And I would also add that to say that the Antichrist will be Jewish is supremely offensive to Jewish people. You must know that and be very careful with that. This fuels the flames of the ancient, quote, blood libel, if you're familiar with that. Allegations of Jews having human sacrifices on the altar and all of this. In fact, the most virulent strain of anti-Semitism in the world that was really motivated by Christians over the years to persecute, persecute Jews comes from this particular deception, and it's very prominent among the Muslims today. Now, it's hard to know the origin of the blood libel, but John Chrysostom in the 4th century A.D. taught that the Antichrist would be a Jew from the cursed tribe of Dan. So that's probably where a lot of this came. And for him and many others, Jews were inveterate uh, murderers uh, possessed by the devil, by the devil, and the blood libel uh, has grown over the years. You hear stories of how the Jews sold themselves to Satan, and, and they're worse than apes, that they grow horns, and they're committed to enslaving all of the Jewish world. And this is, this is the type of stuff that is taught, especially to young Muslim children. 
This is why there's such hatred for the Jews. So be very careful if you say, well, you know, I think the Antichrist just might be a Jew. There's all kinds of problems with that, I believe, exegetically. But also be careful with respect to how the Jews would hear this. But next we see his, this, the likeness of the Antichrist to, to the one who empowers him in verse 1. It says, having ten horns and seven heads. We have almost the same identical uh, description of Satan in chapter 12, verse 3, where it says, the great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, horns are always emblematic in the scripture of great strength and power. And this is the symbolism that we see here with the beast who will rule over ten kings and ten nations. In Daniel 7, verses 16 and following, we discover that the number ten is emblematic of the great political and military power of the Antichrist. Moreover, ultimately, according to Daniel 7, 23, he will rule the whole world. And there he is pictured as the fourth beast who will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. And this is a description that links him to the fourth kingdom of Daniel's vision. Remember that great vision of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in Daniel 3. I mean, Daniel 2. This great kingdom of Rome with legs of iron, it says, yet its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And it goes on to say that the one that was a stone cut out without hands, picturing Christ. And that will be the one that will strike on his feet of iron and clay and crush it, according to uh, Daniel 2, 33 through 34. So the Lord is telling John here in his vision that this beast is going to have ten horns. Again, symbolic of this revived Roman Empire and seven heads, which represents seven successive world empires. We see them described, for example, in Revelation 17. They are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and and the final kingdom of the Antichrist. And notice, it says, on his ten horns were ten diadems. The diadema, this is a, a crown that marked the regal status of a subordinate king. And this is symbolic of the regal authority associated with These ten rulers and their empires, all of which will be subordinate to the beast, to the Antichrist. And finally, we see that on his heads were blasphemous names. And these names will demonstrate the allegiance that they will have to the beast, whom they will deify rather than worshiping the one true God. And by the way, this was practiced in the ancient days, the days of the Roman emperors, where they would put uh, various uh, titles of, uh, of deities on, on different types of, of, um, of crowns that they would have. So, this is speaking of his demonic origin. Secondly, we learn more here in verse 2 about his world empire. Notice it says, and the, pe- and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now, this imagery, dear friends, is also rooted in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel portrays four beasts. You recall, he portrays the lion, the bear, and the leopard. And the fourth beast, which is a composite of the first three, is described as, in verse 7, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. 
And it's interesting that here John lists these animals in reverse. And the reason for that is because he is looking back upon history, whereas Daniel was looking forward into history. Now, these three animals, the leopard, the bear, and the lion, symbolize ferocious, vicious power of the three successive world empires of of Neo-Babylonian, Medo-Persia, and Greece. But the fourth beast, representing the Roman Empire, is emblematic of the final empire of the Antichrist. That empire that will incorporate the cruelty and the power of the first three. And friends, this will be a final empire that is unparalleled in human history. It's interesting, if you watch the last presidential election, you can see how easy it is for people to abandon all logic and common sense and worship a man. And that's precisely what is going to happen when people are afraid and when people are desperate. They will turn to man. They won't turn to God. And this is what will happen once again. In fact, every dictator over the course of history has known this. This is a secret. If you get people to a place of desperation, they will follow you anywhere. And that's precisely what I believe is happening here. Out of the chaos, out of the ruin, out of the desperation of a society, leaders will rise and say, I will give you the answer. Adolf Hitler seized upon the depressed economy in Germany and the fears of the German people. And he guaranteed, quote, peace with honor, peace for our time, end quote. And the people bought it. And the rest is history. The rule of the Antichrist will exceed all of the deceptions and wickedness of Hitler a thousandfold and for good reason. Notice in verse 2, it says, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Again, it's hard to imagine what the world will be like once the church is removed. But think of the utter freefall of morality when the Holy Spirit steps aside, as he will, according to Second Thessalonians 2, 7. It says, when he, now, when he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Literally, when he steps aside. Think what it will be like. And this will happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. You see, when that happens, this will allow Satan's dictator to rule without restraint. And that will happen for 42 months. The scripture is very clear. Daniel 7:25, as well as Revelation 13, 5. And next, the Lord reveals to us the, the, the incredible deception that will unite the world around the Antichrist and worship him. And that's his counterfeit death, number three. Notice verse three. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. If you'll notice here, the, the personal pronoun his combined with verses 12, 14, and chapter 17, 8, as well as verse 11, that really helps us understand that this fatal wound does not refer to the destruction of and subsequent healing of one of the nations, as some people want to say, but rather it refers to the person of the Antichrist. And this also explains the world's amazement 
how the world will see this and be completely flabbergasted. And this will galvanize the people. People of vast religions, vastly different religions, vastly different cultures. It will galvanize them with all this diversity to coexist and to worship and follow after the beast. Now, we're not told the specifics here, but we are told that he will supposedly die and be brought back to life, a counterfeit of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christ that he opposes. And if you look at all of these scenes throughout the prophetic literature, you will see that Satan always does things that are a counterfeit of what Christ has done. Of course, we're familiar with what I call the religious version of world wrestling. You can turn on the TV almost any day and see millions of people following after phony faith healers doing all kinds of ridiculous things. But friends, all of the smoke and mirrors of Benny Hinn will pale in comparison to the deception that will occur with the false prophet that is introduced in verses 12 through 15. In fact, Paul describes this powerful trickery in 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 9. He says this, The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, his counterfeit death is going to lead number four to his global worship worship. Notice in verse 4, and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast. You see, by now, if you remember your your prophecy, all of the cataclysmic judgments of the seal and, and, and the trumpet judgments, they will have killed literally billions of people upon the earth. It, it will be devastating. The inhabitants of the earth will be in utter terror. And the text tells us that they will blaspheme the Lamb. They will blaspheme God, the God of glory, their only hope of salvation. But an amazing shift is going to occur at this point in history. The world that embraced this ecumenical pluralism of, of the great harlot church, where all of the religions will coexist, will suddenly bow the knee to the Antichrist. Christianity will be seen as public enemy number one, not to mention the ongoing hatred of the Jews. And yet, as we look at Scripture, we will see that people will also be coming to a saving knowledge of Christ by the droves during this time. And after seeing the death and what many will consider to be the reincarnation of the Antichrist, the world will quickly desire the same. They're going to want some kind of salvation. They've seen billions of people die. So, hey, let's worship this guy. He can save us as well. He's got a counterfeit resurrection. Let's buy into that. It worked for Jesus. Why won't it work for this guy? That's the idea. And by worshiping the Antichrist, isn't it amazing? They will unwittingly be worshiping Satan who empowers them. 
It's amazing if you think about it. Satan is so powerful that he can actually deceive people into worshiping him. The very one that will damn them. They will say, according to verse 4, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? You see, they will see him as being absolutely invincible. They will worship him as a god. And this then will help us understand the fifth component of this description of the Antichrist, and that is his arrogant blasphemies. Notice verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Isn't it interesting? It says there was given to him. In other words, here the Lord reminds us again that he is ultimately sovereign. He is the sovereign God that ordains this. He has said, for example, in Isaiah 45, 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So indeed, the Lord is going to orchestrate these things to ultimately display his power, to display his mercy and grace upon those that he will save. All of these things ultimately to put his glory on display. And of course, this will be a source of great comfort to believers who are living in that day. Who knows? Some of these believers may listen to this particular CD that's being produced tonight. They will certainly have the word of God and they will find great comfort to see once again that it is God who is in charge of all of these things. You will recall that there was a promised blessing giving, given to the people who, who read this book. Here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So prophetically, God ordains 42 months a season of blasphemy against himself, and this will include blasphemy against three things. Notice verse 6, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. He's going to blaspheme God, he's going to blaspheme his name, and of course his name encompasses all of the glorious attributes of his person, as well as his tabernacle. This is where God resides right now in transcendent glory, the transcendent glory of heaven from which Satan has been expelled by this time. And he goes on to say, and those who dwell in heaven, he's going to blaspheme them. them. These are the saints and the holy angels whom Satan hates. And the Lord concludes this section with a description of the Antichrist's murderous campaign. Number six, verse seven, and it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. By the way, overcome them physically, not spiritually. Saints will always persevere. We have been sealed for the day of redemption. Paul has told us in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30. In first Peter one, five, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So God guarantees the final salvation of all true believers and all true believers will persevere by the power of the spirit. So Satan's murderous campaign will 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 overcome many believers during this time physically before the Lord finally returns, but not spiritually. And the text says, and 
And God gave him authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Verse eight, and all who dwell on the earth. By the way, this is a phrase in Revelation to describe unbelievers. All those who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. In the New Testament, the phrase the foundation of the world is a synonym for before time began or from all eternity or eternity past. It's interesting. Seven times the New Testament describes believers as those whose names have been written in the book of life. And may I remind you, my friends, that this is the divine registry of those God who has chosen in eternity past to reconcile unto himself by his uninfluenced choice. This is the glorious doctrine of election. This is a registry written in eternity past, according to Titus 1, verses 1 and 2, where it speaks how we were chosen of God in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, before time began. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. So here the Lord reminds us of the security of the believer, many of which will be the victims of the Antichrist. And don't you know this will be a comfort to those who are losing their loved ones and their friends during this time? Because even though all believers will be snatched away at the beginning of the tribulation, there will be millions of people that will come to Christ during this time. So after assuring the saints of their security because of their election and the sanctifying work of, as he says, the blood of the lamb who was slain, he makes a plea here in verse nine for spiritual understanding. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, this is fascinating. This phrase is used seven times in chapters two and three. Seven times in chapters two and three. But at the end of that phrase, in those chapters, there is an added phrase, and that is to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, in other words, seven times in chapters two and three, it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. But if you notice, it doesn't say to what the Spirit says to the churches here. Isn't that interesting? Why is that phrase omitted? Well, the reason is because the church is no longer here. The church has been snatched away in the rapture before the tribulation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see the church on earth. But from Revelation 4 on, it's always in heaven. Never mentioned again. So he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then he gives them a proverb. And this, my friends, is addressed specifically to the saints who will be alive during this time of enormous persecution and suffering. He says in verse 10, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Now, this is both a warning for them to submit without retaliation to to the impending persecution of the hands at the hands of the Antichrist, but it's also a message of hope. He's ultimately saying, look, I've ordained this to happen. Trust me. 
Trust me, don't fight this. I'm in charge. My grace will ultimately prevail. As Paul said in Titus 3, 7, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And then he concludes saying, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. When I meditated upon this passage, actually several years ago, I was thinking about all that is about to transpire and all of the things that God has promised that is going to, going to happen to this world. And I was thinking of those people who will come to a saving knowledge of Christ and who will endure things that we, can, we, we couldn't even really fathom unless we were there. And for them to have this kind of comfort in the sovereign promises of God will be undoubtedly a marvelous, marvelous blessing. And thinking upon that, I wrote this, ordained to suffer for a while, by grace we will endure. The flames of each and every trial doth make our faith more pure. By grace alone He gave us life, indwelt He conquers fear, redeemed to live above the strife, by grace we persevere. So friends, we live in a very difficult age. We live in an age where, again, I believe with all my heart that the world is being prepared very, very quickly for the Antichrist. And you need to get in harmony with it. You need to loosen your grip upon this world. Now, don't hear me say that you need to go out and, you know, buy machine guns and tanks and fill your house full of food and all of that. You just need to be smart on those things. But, beloved, here's what I am saying. You need to make sure you're right with God. You need to make sure you know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is coming just as certain as the sun will rise in the morning in the east. And all that He has promised will come to pass. It's real easy for us to lose our perspective. Because we go to our comfortable homes and we turn on our televisions and we watch our football games and we go to our work. And we drive our cars and we play with our little machines and do all of this stuff. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we are here for one purpose, and that is to glorify God. And in the context of glorifying Him, we are to be all about spreading the good news of the gospel of Christ. That's what we need to be about. And living for His glory. Knowing that indeed all of these things are about to happen. And given the truth of all of this, my friends, be excited. We could literally see the Lord before we finish our pizza tonight. Because the next thing on the prophetic timetable, I believe, is the Lord to come and take away His bridal church. And that is us. And when that happens, literally all hell will break loose upon this world. So be ready, be prepared. May He find you watching and waiting faithful at your post. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we just pray that you will cause the truths of your word to penetrate our hearts in such a way as to motivate us to be serious about serving you. Nothing else really matters. Everything else is secondary. Lord, may we be a people not only of hope, but a people of love and a people of action. Help us to this end, Lord. And again, we cry out to you for loved ones that we know that do not know you. Oh, God, would that you save them. Would that you use us as instruments of righteousness in their life, that they might see the good news of the gospel. That they might see the wrath that abides upon them. That they might repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you and we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. Dismiss us now with your grace. And may you be praised in every thought and in every word and in every deed. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.